You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. My name's Yvette and today we're reading from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 17 to 24. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, uh, thanks, Yvette, uh, for doing that reading. Uh, I acknowledge that this is the first time uh, I'm preaching since announcing last Sunday that I'm uh, resigning, uh, kind of effective around the, the end of February. And so that might kind of have other thoughts and emotions uh, in our hearts and minds as we come to God's word. But let's remember that this time's not primarily about hearing from me, uh, but about hearing from the Lord. Uh, and so let's try to tune into the Lord's voice uh, as we look at his word this morning. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We long to hear you speak to us this day, uh, particularly uh, about how you have already changed us through Jesus Christ, your Lord, uh, by your grace and through faith in him, uh, and how you want to continue to change us uh, as we live our lives together in Christ. Uh, In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I do wonder how much you think we should expect to change in life. How much should a person expect to change? You know, expectation management is important, isn't it? Uh, And so it's important to be clear. How much should we expect to change in life, in, in life in general or perhaps specifically as a Christian? Whether it be physical change, you know, you you want to pursue a more healthy diet, you want to get more fit, you want to be more flexible or whatever it is. Uh, Whether it be emotional change, you'd really like to manage uh, stress more effectively or deal with conflict in certain relationships. Or or maybe it is spiritual change. There's a particular uh, habit, a sinful habit that you want to put off. There's fruit of the spirit that you'd really like to see more of in your life. You want to become more like Jesus. But how much should you expect to change? I want to suggest, particularly when it comes to spiritual change, that there are two errors that we should do our best to try and avoid as individuals and as a community. On the one hand, I think we should try to avoid being overly optimistic about change. I'd say, who's overly optimistic about change? I hear it sometimes when I speak to a Christian Uh, who says something along the lines of, I feel like such a failure as a Christian. I've been a Christian for quite some time now, and I thought I'd be doing so much better in this or that area of my life. In fact, I should be doing better. And I kind of want to say to them, just don't be so hard on yourself. You're expecting too much. You're being overly optimistic about change. The reality is Christian change is incredibly slow. 
Think about that picture in the Bible that Jesus speaks about change and Paul speaks about change as being like fruit. Now, I've sat for a really long time uh, before watching a fruit tree and it's not that easy to see it growing. Every now and then, some fruit props out, right? Christian change is really, really slow. So slow that sometimes you can't even see it happening. So we shouldn't be overly optimistic about change. We shouldn't burden ourselves with that. And yet... We shouldn't be overly pessimistic about change. I've spoken to to some Christians who say, this is just who I am. I'm never going to change. I tried it once about 10 years ago and it didn't work out. And so this is it, you know, sure. I'm going to keep trusting in Jesus, but I've given up any hope of becoming more like Jesus. It's obviously a bit of a caricature, but you get the vibe. They're saying, I'm just not going to change. And I want to suggest that in light of the images of change and growth and maturity that we see in today's passage from Ephesians chapter 4 and in other parts of the Bible, uh, it seems overly pessimistic to resign yourself to the fact that the best that I can do is just cling to Jesus and I don't expect to change at all. How much do you expect to change in the Christian life? I think we've got to remember what Adam showed us last week from uh, the the previous section of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. Adam showed us wonderfully that God has brought us together through faith in Christ as a local body of Christ, and God wants us to commit to building up this body of Christ. It's the only body building that I'm ever going to give myself to in life. He wants us to commit to this task of building up the body of Christ so that we all grow and mature and become more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. It's a picture of growth and maturity and change into the image of Christ. So I want to suggest that uh, that Paul's saying, don't be overly optimistic about change. Well, that's an unnecessary burden to place upon us. And yet, don't be overly pessimistic about change because that's just hopeless. It's discouraging. It underestimates the power of the gospel and the power of the spirit. Yes, God graciously saves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. We want to be convinced that God has changed us and he will change us as we journey together in Christ. And today what we're going to see in a little bit more detail in verses 17 to 24 uh, exactly how this change happens. It happens uh, as we understand two things. Uh, The first thing is we must understand that God has already changed us. In his amazing grace to us in Jesus his son, God has wrought a radical transformation in our lives. This is verses 17 to 19. Saving us from our old life and for a new life. God has done that already. And the second thing we need to understand is that God wants us together to continue to change as we keep putting off that old life and keep putting on our new life. So that's the two big things we're exploring. Uh, First, let's take a look at verses 17 to 19, where we see that God wonderfully has already changed us. It's a wonderful work of his grace, saving us from our old life and for a new life. Uh, Please have your Bible open uh, and take a look at verse 17 there. 
where Paul says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles there are just the nations of the world around us. Basically everyone who's not a Christian, excluding the Jews, right? Jews and Gentiles who aren't Christians, right? Paul's saying no longer live as the other Gentiles in Ephesus. Don't live like you used to live, Paul says. Why? Well, because in Christ, God has made you new. God has changed you. He's transformed you. He's transformed every aspect of who you are. So first, uh, God has given you a new heart. That's what Paul says. He says this is kind of the flip side of what Paul says. Notice in verse 18, the end of verse 18, uh, that Paul says that, that before the Ephesians became Christians, you could say before we became Christians, uh, we had hearts that were hard to God. Paul talks about the hardening of their hearts. Uh, in Paul's day, that word hardening uh, was used to describe the, the process of a piece of wood that had actually petrified. If you've ever seen that in a, in a museum or something, and it had become as hard as stone. That, that's the word hardening there. And Paul's saying that before you guys were Christians, that's what you were like. That's what the nations around you are like still. Their hearts are hard to God. But not anymore. God has changed you. God has given us a new heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God promised through the prophet Ezekiel uh, that when his kingdom comes, when his king, uh, the Christ, the Messiah comes, uh, he will give his people a new heart. He will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And Paul's saying that is what God has done in you, Ephesians. I'm saying that is what God has done in you, Darabin Presbyterian Church. If you're a Christian, by the power of his spirit, God has given you a new heart. What does that mean? It means you can't live as someone who has a hard heart anymore. Because God has changed you dramatically at the very core of who you are. And not just your heart, God has given you a new mind. And notice that Paul says that because of our hard hearts, there was a certain ignorance in their minds. Now, Paul's absolutely not saying uh, that everyone who's not a Christian is stupid or, you know, like ignorant. Like he knows, I know, uh, that, that many non-Christians are way more intelligent than I'll ever be. Right? He's not saying they're ignorant in every way. He is saying they're ignorant about the most important spiritual things. Their minds are closed to the wonderful truths of the gospel. There's ignorance in their minds. But Paul says in other parts of Ephesians, not anymore for Christians. God has opened our minds to the wonderful truths of the gospel. God has enlightened our minds that were previously darkened. As Paul says here in verse 17, we were darkened in our understanding, not anymore, because Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the very word of God, Christ has broken into our dark minds, the light of the world, enlightening our minds. God is renewing our minds, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, by the power of his spirit. So why should we no longer live as we used to live? Because God has already changed us. By his grace, he's given us a new heart. He's given us a new mind. 
And Paul says he's given us a new spirit as well. Notice he, he says there in verse 18 that the, because of our hard hearts and ignorant minds, uh, we were separate from the life of God. And what does it mean to be separate from the life of the God who is the source of all life, <laughs> uh, the one who created and sustains everyone and everything? It means to be spiritually dead. As I've said before, it means to be like a, a, a kind of bunch of flowers in a vase. They've been chopped off from their source of life. They look alive, they look full of vitality and beauty, but they're separate from the life source. And so they're destined to die. And we saw back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that this is what our state was in our sins, apart from knowing God through faith in Christ. Paul says there, in your transgressions and sins, you were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Uh, but in verses 4 to 10, God in his mercy, his grace, has made you alive with Christ. Through faith in Christ, you've been united with Christ, and you are no longer separate from the life of God. Indeed, you've been drawn in, Paul says, to, to the very life of God, uh, where through faith in Christ, you know God as your loving Heavenly Father, through faith in Jesus, his Son, and you are filled with the power of God the Spirit. You could not be any more in the life of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, I insist on it. How could you possibly live as you used to live? For God has already changed you in his grace. He's given you a new heart. He's given you a new mind. He's given you a new spirit. He's made you completely new in every facet of who you are. So how could you possibly live as those around you do, as Paul describes in verse 19? Well, that's a way of life that is just not fitting for someone who has been made new in Christ. God has made us new in Christ. Uh, through faith in Christ, he's brought us into a completely different spiritual context, as it were. Uh, it's a bit uh, of a mind-bending thing, but the way the Bible talks about things is it might say, hey, you can be uh, in the flesh or in the spirit. You can be in the world or you can be in Christ or in Adam or in Christ. You can be a part of the nations, the Gentiles, or you can be a part of God's new humanity in Christ Jesus. And Paul's saying that through faith in Christ, you're now in a completely different context. And as a part of that context, you must clothe yourselves with a completely different set of clothes, a completely different life. You know, we don't want to be like the person who turns up to the next church working bee wearing a suit and a tie. Like that's, that's clothing uh, that fits in some contexts, but not so much at a working bee. Oh, we don't want to be like the person who goes to the wedding in their gym gear. Yeah, I'm ready to go, right? Like that's, that's clothing, but it's not fitting for the context. And Paul says, you guys are in a different context now. Through faith in Christ, you are in Christ. You are in the spirit. You're a part of God's new humanity in Christ Jesus. You must not live as you used to live. You live as God's new people in Christ Jesus. You take off an old set of clothes and you put on a more foot, a fitting set of clothes. So that's the first thing. If we want to have the right approach to Christian change and, and growth and maturity, 
we must first understand that God in his grace has achieved the most important change. He has radically changed us, saving us from our old life and for a new life. But that leads to the second thing, which is that God does call us to keep putting off those ill-fitting clothes of our old life and keep putting on the better-fitting clothes, the more suitable clothes of our new life. How do we do that? You'll see that this is verses 22 to 24. Notice Paul's language in those verses about putting off and putting on. Take a look at from verse 22. Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and, verse 24, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So how is it that you, someone starts the Christian life? You know, you choose to become a Christian. Uh, Jesus, say in the Gospel of Mark, uh, he says, repent and believe the good news. Repentance and faith. This is how the Christian life starts. On the one hand, you're called to put off an old life, to, to, to repent of a life where you were living as if you were king, you were in control, uh, you were lord of your own universe, as it were. You, you turn away from that life, you put that life off, you repent of that life. On the other hand, you choose to put on a new life, a life of living with Jesus as king, a life acknowledging that Jesus is lord, a life lived by faith in him and not by faith in yourself. Right, that's how the Christian life starts, putting off and putting on, repentance and faith. And yet here Paul's not speaking about that one-off moment where someone repents and believes, where they put off their old life and put on their new life. That's a one-off thing that God does by his grace in the life of every single person who becomes a Christian. Here Paul's talking about an ongoing process in the life of a Christian that we actively participate in. By God's grace, dependent on his spirit, yes. But we actively participate, Paul says, in putting off our old life and putting on our new life. Now, I do want to be really, really clear, right? Sometimes people mishear uh, these sort of things and they say, okay, I I get it. Aaron's saying uh, that if I want God to love me, I need to make myself new by putting off my old self and cleaning myself up and putting on a new self. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. If that's what you're thinking, that's not what I'm saying. I've already said, God has made us new by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we're called to respond to God's amazing grace by continuing this process of putting off the the kind of dirty bits of clothes that hang on to us from our old life, saying, oh, where'd that dirty sock come from? That's not fitting anymore, right? We're called to actively do that in response to the change that God has wrought in our lives. So how does this change happen? I think it's pretty clear from, um, let me see where I'm at in my notes. It's pretty clear from these verses 22 to 24 as a whole that this change of putting off and putting on, the kind of epicentre of it, the control centre of it, is in our minds. It happens in our minds. 
I say that. Take a look again at verses 22 and 24. Notice all the, the language that's focused on our minds, learning, teaching, deceit, truth, and so on. I'll read it again. Oh, sorry, this is from verse 20. From verse 20, Paul says, That, however, uh, is not the way of life that you learned. Right? There's an education thing that happens when you become a Christian. You've got to learn something. Uh, you learned this way of life when you, heard, uh, um, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So the new way of life that is in Christ Jesus is characterised by truth. Verse 22, uh, verse 22 uh, you were taught, again, uh, with regard uh, to your former way of life, uh, to put off your old self. What is it that characterises the old self? It has been corrupted by deceitful desires. Uh, so the old self, the old life, is characterised by lies, by deceit, by desires that promise a whole lot but deliver very little. And so verse 23, uh, Paul calls us to be made new in the attitude of our minds uh, and to put on the new self created uh, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see the emphasis here on our minds, what's going on in our heads? What are we learning? Are we filling our minds with truth of God's word or lies? And notice how verse 23 is right between verse 22 and 24. Like that's, that's profound, isn't it? So, right, verse 22, Paul says, put off your old self. Verse 24, Paul says, put on your new self. And what does he say in the middle? Verse 23, be made new in the attitude of your minds. So in Paul's thinking that the, the being made new, this process of our minds being renewed by the truth of God's word, this is key to putting off our old self and putting on our new self. Right? If we want to keep changing and, and growing as individuals and as a community of faith, what do we need to do? First, we need to identify that the lies of our old self that we need to put off, the old life that we used to live. And second, we need to put on new truths, wonderful truths about who God is and what he has done for us uh, in Christ. Uh, this is how we change. So how do we, like, where, where would we get started with this? Uh, even looking at my own life, I can identify all sorts of kind of deceptive things or lies that pop into my mind and I can identify all sorts of truths that I wish I could put on a little bit more deeply and understand them and believe them more fully. Where do we start? I think uh, some of you have read a book by Tim Chester called You Can Change. Uh, I recommend the book uh, You Can Change and in the book uh, Tim Chester helpfully summarises all these different truths that he thinks uh, that we need to put on and perhaps the lies that we need to put off. Uh, he summarises them with four G's. Uh, some of you have heard it before. God is great, God is good, God is gracious and God is glorious. Four truths that, that Tim Chester says, hey, we do well uh, if we put aside, uh, put off the lies connected to these truths and put on the truths themselves all the more deeply, if we really, really believe them, it would change how we live in certain ways. Now, we don't have time to, I mean, you guys can think about it, but I'm going to give you two examples of what this uh, has looked like and continues to look like in my life, uh, connected to two of the Gs. And as I'm doing that, you might 
like these specific examples that I share might be relevant for you, but I share them just as examples so you can think, hey, what might this look like for me? To put off lies of my old life and to put on truth of my new life. So for me, I've shared before, I think up in the front and certainly in personal conversations, that I'm someone, it's really pretty normal for me to struggle with anxiety. Like that, That's part of who I am. It's like I'm always going to be someone who is more prone to being anxious than other people I hang out with. You know, I hang out with Ken Coe, uh, dear brother, like that guy, like he's just so chilled, like nothing bothers him, right? And so we're wired differently. Like God has made us differently. That's fine. And so I'm always going to be someone who's more anxious than other people. I'm not picking on Ken. He's a, yeah. Right? But... I also read stuff about the new life that God wants me to live. I I read in in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, Aaron, you don't need to worry because your heavenly father loves you. I think, oh, what is it? How do I live that out in the midst of my anxiety? I read in in Philippians chapter 4 where Paul says that that, uh, we're offered a, a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of our anxieties and worries. So what does it look like for me as, as a Christian who's prone to being anxious? To th- how do I think about my anxiety and how do I manage it? Well, uh, for me, it's meant three things. The first thing is uh, recognising that, uh, in part, my anxiety is a physiological problem. This is not the case for everyone, but for me, there's a bit of a brain chemistry thing uh, where I go to the doctor and get some medication. Now, not everyone who's anxious needs medication, but for me, that's over the years something that I've worked out. It's at least in part a physiological thing. As second, it's in part a psychological thing, where there are just distorted thinking patterns that I benefit from meeting with a psychologist, sometimes more often, sometimes less often, to kind of work on different cognitive therapies, right? How do I think about my thinking? Right, so it's a physiological thing and a psychological thing. The challenging thing for me over the years has been to realise that it's also a spiritual thing. Now, the spiritual problem is that I don't really believe that God is great. I mean, I do. Like, I can stand here and say, God is great, he's sovereign, he's in control of everyone and everything. You've heard me say that before. But when life feels chaotic and out of control for me... So often, my default assumption is, oh, it must be chaotic and out of control for God too. So my only option is to be anxious. So what does that mean? It means that in the moment where I feel anxious and that life's chaotic and out of control, I've got to ask for God's help, for his grace, to help me to kind of put off the lie of my old self that God is kind of not really, hasn't really got things covered, that he can't keep his world under control. Like I've got to put off that lie and I've got to put on the truth that my loving Heavenly Father truly is great, greater than I believe right now in this moment. I can find rest and peace in the fact that God is great, that he is in control even when I'm not in control. That's one example of what it could like. What does it look like in the, the, the kind of day-to-day mess of life to put off the lies of our old self and put on the truth of our new self? Another one for me is connected to uh, the G, that God is good. 
I suspect I'm not alone in sometimes having uh, times in life where I feel a, a bit flat or a bit empty inside. I'm sure you've been in that space before. Uh, life feels a bit drab, and so you want to kind of press it up a bit and uh, get, you know, get a bit of excitement and get some comfort and pleasure into your life. Uh, and so for me, I often find myself in those moments turning to the comforts and pleasures of the world around me. You know, open up a, a bottle of red wine, uh, you know, watch some sport, a good British crime show. Uh, these are the kind of some of the comforts and pleasures of the world around me that I turn to. And of course, God made these things. Like God even made CCs. I praise God for that every time I have them. Right? These are wonderful things for us to enjoy. But so often I pursue these comforts and pleasures that I leave God out of the picture altogether. Why do I do that? Well, it's on some level because I believe the oldest lie in the Bible. Remember Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3? What's the lie that they believed? They believed the lie that God was holding out on them. That God was a, a kind of killjoy up in the sky that didn't want them to have the full and flourishing life that they could have if only they cast him off and had a packet of CCs, you know? Right? And so what do I need to do in that moment? I need to turn away from that lie. I need to put it off. And I need to turn towards the truth that God in Christ his son offers me living water to satisfy the deepest desires of my soul. Right? That God truly is good. And so I don't need to turn elsewhere. Now that's not to say, you know, again, it's not to say that it's wrong to have a glass of red wine or to watch some sport or whatever it is that gives you some comfort and pleasure. What's wrong is that subtle lie that says that God can't offer me comfort. He can't satisfy me. So I want you to take a moment to, to think about your own life, uh, assuming that you're a Christian. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you should think about the first part of my sermon. If you feel that your heart is hard towards God, that your mind is not open to the truth of God, that there's a certain deadness, you, you thought life would offer so much more than this, well, I want to say trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and God will make you new in him. But if you're a Christian and God has already made you new in Christ Jesus, his son, what do you think the lies are, the most common ones that you need to put off uh, what, is, what is the truth that you need to put on? Uh, is it that God is great? Uh, so you don't need to be in control. Is it that God is gracious? So you don't need to live your life trying to prove yourself to everyone. Is it that God is glorious? So you don't need to live in fear of other people. Is it that God is good, so you don't need to look elsewhere for satisfaction and pleasure and comfort? Why don't you just take a moment to mentally jot down or write down. If you, you know those things, they're called pens. We used to use them. You could write something down or type it on your device. Is there a truth that you think you need to put on? Now, um, 
I don't know how long I've been preaching for, but I, I, I just kind of assumed that since there was a congregational meeting at one o'clock that I'd just keep going all the way through. Is that... No, sorry. <laughs> just joking. Um... So all this process of um, putting off and putting on, uh, it, it's, it's actually really hard work, isn't it? Kind of thinking about our thinking and what is the truth. And, uh, and of course, it's such hard work. It's really impossible for us to do by ourselves. Uh, we need to be, we are dependent. We need to be dependent on God and his grace every step of the way. Humbly acknowledging, God, I can't do this. I need your, your help, your spirit to empower me. Uh, but we actually also need one another. Like not, not just God, but we need one another to change and grow and mature in Christ. Uh, take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. It's a verse that was in Adam's passage from last week, but relevant sort of for the whole section. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where Paul says uh, that, that he kind of calls us to, to build up the body of Christ uh, by speaking the truth in love to one another. So I want you to notice uh, kind of three ingredients there for the body of Christ to be built up. Three ingredients for change and growth and maturity in the body of Christ. The first is relationships of love. Speak the truth in love, Paul says. Relationships of love and grace. Uh, the second ingredient is a commitment to speaking the truth. And the third ingredient is being a part of a local body of Christ uh, where you journey with one another over time. Right? Well, where you actually have people who are loving you and you're loving them, and people who are speaking the truth to you and you're speaking the truth to them. Right? This is uh, what I've called God's recipe for how we as a church can change together. Grace plus truth plus time. Well, I don't say I've called it that. I've called it that in my sermon outline. Uh, about six months ago, I was uh, meeting with a friend, uh, and um, I guess, as most people here know, uh, I've had a season of life and ministry uh, which has revealed uh, all sorts of areas of my life uh, that I would like to see change and growth in. Uh, and so I was talking with this friend uh, about this, uh, and he recommended that I read a book uh, by a man named Henry Cloud called Changes That Heal. And it's in that book that Cloud makes the case uh, that God's, well, he calls it God's formula, but, you know, I like the idea of a recipe. Uh, God's recipe for deep and healing change is grace plus truth plus time. Grace plus truth uh, plus time. And I thought uh, during the week, I was like, yeah, that, that is the case with my kids. Uh, my kids, uh, if they're going to change and grow and mature uh, in, into adults... What do they need? Well, the first ingredient they need is the security of grace. Right? They need to know that Gabby and I love them unconditionally. They're safe and secure in our love. They need the security of grace. But they also need us to be committed to speaking the truth to them. Right? To, to gently point out ways in which they need to change and grow and mature so that they can grow up into adults who are healthy and flourishing. So they need grace plus truth, and they also need time. Uh, if you're a parent who's anything like, oh, like I expect my kids to, to change yesterday, uh, but like, I need to be more patient with them, don't I? Give them space and time to process the things that I've pointed out and to grow and mature into them. Grace plus truth 
plus time. This is God's recipe for change. And it's God's recipe for how we can change together as a church. God wants us to be a church that is characterised by, that is full of grace. Full of grace. Where people are safe and secure in the fact, not just that they're loved by God, but they're loved by others. That we're loved by one another. And within that security of grace, God wants us to be committed to speaking the truth to one another. The wonderful truth of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ his son. He wants our church to be full of truth. Not just, uh, you know, for 30 minutes or however long I preach for on a Sunday. Like uh, this truth, this kind of speaking of truth to one another, happening after church and over coffee during the week, happening over lunch, you see. He wants our church to be full of grace and full of uh, truth, and he wants us to be a church uh, that is committed to giving one another time. Because we recognise that in our own lives, change and growth is usually way slower than we'd like to see. And so we we would expect our brothers and sisters to also take time to change. Grace plus truth plus time. That's God's recipe for how we can change together as a church. And that's not surprising, is it? Because it's what we see in Jesus. Remember John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14. John says, we saw Jesus in all his glory. We beheld his glory. And what was he full of? full of grace and truth. Truth without grace is an overly harsh and critical community. Grace without truth is a community without direction, with no standards, with no clarity on how God wants us to live. We need to be full of grace and truth, and we need to be full of time. Being committed to being patient with one another, bearing with one another over the journey so that we can grow and change Together, as Jesus has been with us, full of grace and truth. And I reckon if we do that, we'll probably change less uh, than those who are overly optimistic about change think we should. And we'll probably change more than uh, those who are overly pessimistic about change think we can. The important thing is not so much how much we change. It's being convinced that God in his grace has changed us radically, deeply, through Jesus, his son. And God in his grace will change us as we journey together over time as a community full of grace and truth. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for uh, this vision here that we see of a church that is growing and maturing and changing together. Uh, We thank you, Father, that uh, in your grace you have already brought uh, the most incredible and radical change uh, to every aspect of who we are giving us a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit, making us completely new in Jesus, your son. We praise you and we rejoice in your grace to us in him. And we pray, Father, as those who have been made new in Christ, that we would put off our old self and put on our new self. And that you would help us to identify the uh, deceits and lies, that we, false truths that we might believe, uh, and to put on the truth of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would uh, enable us to be a church all the more that is full of grace, that is full of truth, and that's committed to journeying with one another over time, uh, that we might change uh, more and more into the glorious image of Jesus, your Son, 
In his name we pray. Amen.